Thank you, Ben. Please take your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. Now, if you remember last week, the emphasis of our story was the hard hearts of the disciples that kept them from really recognizing Jesus for who He was. They, in fact, were fearful of Jesus because they kept misunderstanding His miracles. Well, today we're going to continue on this theme of the human heart. Remember, we said last week that your heart is the moral center of your life. It's the seat of your emotions, your desires, your will. It's the source of your words and your actions. As Proverbs tell us, everything in our lives flows from our hearts. Remember also Jeremiah wrote that the heart is wicked. It's beyond our understanding. It's deceitful. It tends to lead us astray, which is one reason why the modern sentiment of follow your heart is really bad advice. Don't follow your heart. So let's keep these things in mind as we continue to walk with Jesus through Mark's gospel. And in today's story, there are two important matters that Jesus gets right to the heart of. One is about the supremacy of God's truth over our traditions, and the other is the supremacy of righteousness over religion, over ritual. So before we dive into these, though, let's set the stage. Look back here with me at Mark 7, verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law, those are also known as scribes, so the Pharisees and the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. So, you may remember a couple of chapters back that King Herod Agrippa has gotten word of Jesus and his apostles and their ministry. It's captured his attention. Uh, all of the, the teaching and the miracles and everything that happens at the end of chapter 6, it's caught the attention of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. Now, the Sanhedrin was like the Jerusalem, uh, or like the Jewish religious high court. The Supreme Court of the Jews was the Sanhedrin. So they've taken notice of everything that Jesus is saying and doing. And you may even remember earlier, back in Mark chapter 3, that Jesus has already made the Pharisees in the Galilee region angry. So he's made them angry. Well, now the ones in Jerusalem have caught, he's caught their attention. And so they send a truth squad, like theological hitmen, to kind of follow Jesus around, trying to trip him up, trying to trap him in his own words. They're looking for ammunition they can use to take Jesus down. And specifically, the point they're upset about today is how Jesus is so dismissive of the traditions of the elders. And in this first part of this passage, we see the first major truth that Jesus wants to get to the heart of. And that's that God's truth comes above our traditions. Our traditions must submit, must come underneath God's truth. Let's look at... Verse 2. So, they gathered around Jesus and they saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. Now, Mark then has a little parenthetical statement here. Remember, Mark is writing to Gentile Roman Christians, right? He's writing to Christians in Rome that are enduring immense persecution under Nero. And so he has to explain this to them because they don't understand Jewish uh, rituals any more than we do. So we're thankful today that Mark took the time to explain this. He says, The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. 
When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? Now, the first thing we see is that this idea of ritual washing was based on something known as the tradition of the elders. It's also known as the oral tradition or the oral law. Back during the Babylonian exile, uh, Jews were cut off from Jerusalem, cut off from the temple. That's when synagogues began to arise and when rabbinic teaching began to arise. And as the rabbinic teaching tradition came to arise, they began to have this belief that not only did Moses receive the written law, the Torah on Mount Sinai, he also received an oral law, an oral tradition. In fact, the rabbi said, when Moses descended from Sinai, he held the tablets in his hand and the oral law in his mind. The words to the law were contained in the written Torah, but their meaning and application would be transmitted from teacher to student in an eternal chain of generations. This is why there's a, a, there are rabbis. So the whole idea of rabbis is that they are passing on. They've received it from their rabbis. They pass it on to their disciples. And they believe they could trace it all the way back to Moses. They're passing on the interpretation of the law. The application of the law. And in Jesus' day, there were two schools of rabbinical thought. There was the rabbi Shammai and the rabbi Hillel. Shammai had a very strict interpretation of the law. And in fact, the followers of Shammai believed that the oral traditions actually took precedence over the written law. That what was written in the first five books of Moses, they came underneath their traditions. Of course, as you can imagine, the, the teachings of Shammai, that's what the Pharisees believed. That's who they followed, not Hillel, who had a much more a liberal sort of take on the oral tradition. Now, in the 2nd century A.D., the Mishnah is the Jewish uh, oral tradition finally written down. In 200 A.D., they finally wrote this stuff down. And in the Mishnah, it describes the oral tradition like a fence. The idea is that these oral traditions were a fence around the written law, the Torah. And that was to keep the Torah from getting broken. You know, it's like my family and I are going to the Grand Canyon. Okay? They put guardrails up, right, to keep you from getting too close so that you don't fall off, right? So, and I know Julia will not let me cross those barriers and get too close, so you don't have to fear. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's she might. Yeah. And I would deserve it. But that's what the, the oral law was. It was a guardrail. It was a fence to protect you, to keep you from in, infringing against the law of Moses. Now, as you can imagine, much of this oral tradition centered around keeping the Sabbath day because that was a big deal. Jesus has already made the Pharisees angry by breaking the Sabbath day. But some of these traditions, for example, the oral tradition forbade you from looking in a mirror on the Sabbath day. Why? Because if you're like me, you might see a gray hair and you might be tempted to pluck it out. And that's work. And you'd be breaking the Sabbath day. So they just said you can't look in a mirror on the Sabbath day. Okay, there's another one that said you couldn't spit on the dirt on the Sabbath day. Why couldn't you spit on the dirt? Other than that, I guess it's kind of gross to go around spitting. But 
You couldn't spit on the dirt because if you scuff that dirt with your foot, that could be cultivating the ground. And that would be work and you'd be breaking the Sabbath. So you couldn't spit on the Sabbath. It, this fence idea became so ridiculous that rabbis would even debate that if a man with a wooden leg was in his house on the Sabbath and it caught fire and he didn't have time to put it on and he just grabbed it and carried it out, I guess hopping on the other foot, uh, would that be work? He's carrying a burden. Would he be breaking the Sabbath day by saving his wooden leg from burning up in his house? So, you, I mean, they were really straining out, you know, straining gnats and that sort of thing. They, they were really getting crazy with this stuff. But the biggest of concern in the oral tradition wasn't even about the Sabbath. It was about ritual cleanness. What Mark talks about here. What Jesus is being questioned on. And as Ben illustrated, hand washing for them wasn't about hygiene. They weren't worried about germs. It was about obeying the traditional rules about ritual cleanness and religious purity. And again, Mark helpfully explains this to us. So the idea is, you're a Jew... You go to the marketplace to buy food. Okay, who else might be in that marketplace with you? Who might have picked up that piece of fruit before you did? Could be a Gentile. Could be a Samaritan. Could have been a sinner. Somebody who's unclean. And if they touch that fruit and then you touch that fruit and you put it in your pail, guess what? You, your fruit, and your pail are now unclean. So when you get home, you have to wash your hands. You have to wash the pail. You have to wash the fruit. Because you need to rid it of the uncleanness of that Gentile that may have touched it before you did. So on the left, I took these when I was in, in this is actually in Magdala. Uh, on the left is a stone pitcher outside the synagogue. So even when you went into the synagogue, you would put your hands in the water. Now that doesn't look like very clean water, does it? Uh, but I, who knows how clean it looked back then. But that's what they would do. They would wash their hands. So imagine that in a home. You're washing your hands before your meal. Now some people took this to such extremes. They actually had a mikvah oat in their house. And that's a mikvah oat in a Jewish house in Magdala. So this wasn't like you're getting ready to go to the temple. This was in your home. It's like having a baptistry in your house. This wasn't for taking baths. This was for ritually cleansing yourself when you came home from the marketplace. You've been to Walmart. No, to and who, no telling who you rubbed elbows with. So you've got to go through the mikvah oat and have to cleanse yourself. Now let's just pause for a moment and consider the kinds of people... Jesus and his apostles have come into physical contact with lepers, Gentiles, Samaritans, tax collectors and prostitutes and other sinful people, women with issues of blood, dead bodies, all considered unclean. So you can understand why the Pharisees were scandalized knowing who all Jesus has been around and here his, he and his disciples are eating with unwashed hands. Now, before we look at Jesus' response, we need to understand that this disagreement between Jesus and the Pharisees gets to the heart of the matter of true faith versus empty religion. And we need to be reminded by this, that we have to guard ourselves against letting man-made traditions and ideas replace the truth of God in our lives and in our churches. Paul talks about this to the Colossian church when he says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human traditions and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. And Paul goes on to specifically talk about rituals and religious festivals and Sabbath days and those kinds of things. Paul was taking his cue 
from Jesus as we read, picking up in verse 6. Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corban, that is a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Jesus accused the Pharisees of being hypocrites. Now, a hypocrite, the, the Greek word there is the literal word that means actor. He's calling them actors. He's saying you're playing a part on a stage. And in Greek and Roman theater, you'd have an actor play multiple parts. So they would swap off all these different masks. And that's why hypocrite has come to mean someone who's insincere. They're just playing a part. They're wearing a mask. They're a pretender. And Jesus is accusing of the Pharisees of being pretenders. They only appear to care about God's righteousness and God's truth. But it's only an appearance because they're actually guilty of substituting their interpretations, their traditions for God's truth. And in condemning the Pharisees' hypocrisy, Jesus actually gives us the steps. He explains the steps by which we tend to take our traditions, our opinions, our preferences, and we twist God's truth even to the point of justifying our sins and excusing our selfishness. Let's look at those steps real quick. The first is we take a meaningful symbol and we use it to represent a spiritual truth. Now, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. We do that all the time. We take a meaningful symbol to represent a spiritual truth to the Jews. This tradition of ritual washing was meant to remind them that they had been set apart by God. That they were to be different than the pagan nations around them. We as Christians, we often say we're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. We talk about being a light in the darkness and salt of the earth. Or even as James said, that we should keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. Whereas Paul said, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world any longer, but be transformed. So there's nothing wrong with adopting rules of life that are, that are meant to help us more closely follow Jesus. And we all do that. We all have our individual ways or our families or our churches have different ways in which we try to put our own guardrails around ourselves, to keep ourselves accountable, to help us walk the straight and narrow. Jesus himself gave us meaningful symbols, right? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Meaningful symbols to represent spiritual truth. And in addition to those, we've adopted some man-made traditions to help us worship. Here at First Baptist Church, we stand for the reading of God's Word. We light candles. We use a prelude that is supposed to help us begin to focus our hearts and minds in worship. It's not visitation time. I know that's hard. It's hard for me to do that too. But we have that prelude. We use liturgical colors on the altar, we observe liturgical days and seasons like Pentecost Sunday last Sunday or like Advent and Lent. Listen, the Bible doesn't command any of that. I know that's a shocker. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you're supposed to have a prelude. 
Nowhere in the Bible does it say you're supposed to observe Lent. It's not in the Bible. But we've adopted those things because we found them helpful. They help us to worship. The problem comes in step two, when the symbol becomes a required ritual. When it becomes required. The Torah, back in the book of Exodus, it only required priests to engage in ceremonial washing. But about 200 years before Jesus was born, that was expanded to become an expectation for all Jews. So by the time of Jesus, this was pretty well entrenched as a requirement if you wanted to be considered spiritually, ritually clean. Now throughout our history as Christians, we've seen the same thing happen. Our traditions, our preferences, our opinions, they go from being aids to righteous living to become requirements, expectations for righteous living. Maybe it's the way you're supposed to dress when you come to church on Sundays. Maybe it's the kind of music or instruments that we're supposed to use in worship. Sometimes people even elevate certain songs to the level of Scripture. I mean, I've heard people tell me, if we don't sing the doxology, it just isn't worship. I would argue maybe you're worshiping the wrong thing. Some denominations and cults even go so far as to take the symbols of baptism and the Lord's Supper and make them requirements for salvation. They impart God's grace, they say. And that's what leads to number three. The ritual is substituted for the spiritual truth. The outward symbol is no longer just a sign of an inward truth. It actually replaces it. The ritual, the opinion, the interpretation, the preference, it becomes an end in of itself. Now here's the thing. All of this probably began with good intentions. Right? It began with really wanting to help people worship, really wanting to help people live for God, but somewhere along the way in the process, the Spirit of God's law is replaced by a ritual that confuses the cleanliness of our hands with the purity of our hearts. And one tragic result of this is that it gives room for our pride and our selfishness to take center stage. And it actually begins to lead us to wrong attitudes towards other people. Think about the Pharisees. They look down in contempt on those Gentiles and Samaritans and sinners who are unclean. Or, or it, then it leads us to wrong thinking about sin and holiness. So not only are we thinking wrongly about others, we begin to think wrongly about ourselves, which is what leads to number four. The ritual is used to actually justify our sin. As an example of that, Jesus called out the Pharisees for using the oral tradition to invalidate the fifth commandment, the commandment to honor our parents. According to this tradition, somebody could take a piece of property or money they have and they could declare it as korban, which meant a gift or offering to God. Think of it like deferred giving. Okay? Or like maybe putting something in your will. When I die, I want this to go to the church. But until you die, guess what? It's yours. You retain possession of it. You can use it. You can draw interest off those stocks, whatever. But when you die, then it goes to God. The difference with this Corbin idea is that because it was viewed as a vow offering to God, you weren't allowed to give it to anyone else. You couldn't let anyone else use it because you've dedicated it to God. But here's the kicker. You as the owner could still use that dedicated money or profit property for your own benefit. Now, you could use it for yourself, but you couldn't use it to help anybody else. That's why Jesus accused them of hypocrisy, because by keeping this oral tradition, they actually were breaking one of the Ten Commandments. Let's say you had a change of heart. 
You decided you wanted some of that money you had previously dedicated to God to help your parents. You couldn't. You couldn't use that money to help your parents because by doing that, you'd be breaking the oral tradition. Do you see the catch-22 here? By obeying the oral tradition, you're breaking the law of, of Moses. By breaking the oral tradition, you're breaking the tradition of the Pharisees and the rabbis. And amazingly, whenever the two came into conflict, again, the oral tradition always superseded the written Word of God. One scholar explained how this tradition was exploited. He said, a man goes through the formality of vowing something to God, not that he may give it to God, but in order to prevent some other person from having it. God's command to honor your father and mother wasn't simply nullified by this. It was actually reversed. Because it would forbid someone from honoring their parents. You can see why Jesus called them out for this. And this one tradition was just the tip of the iceberg. Jesus used this to point out the comprehensive perversion that was being promoted by these kinds of of, of sinful attitudes and unjust traditions. That's why Jesus said in verse 13, and you do many things like this. This is one example. The tradition of Corbin wasn't an anomaly. This was standard operating procedure for them. And Jesus was disgusted by it. By observing the traditions of men, they neglected the greater law of love. Tradition had replaced truth. Now, we have to be aware of this in our own lives, in our church, even in our culture. the, The Pharisees, yes, they were a religious sect, but we have to remember that Jewish society, all of it, was structured on the law of Moses, not just religion. Politics, warfare, public policies, socioeconomics, all of it was based on the law of Moses. So we can't do what some people want, and just to let, when Jesus criticizes the Pharisee, they want to say, well, that's just like Jesus criticizing the church today. Yes, but more than that. Because the Pharisees were over all of Jewish culture, all of Jewish society. So we need to look beyond just Christian culture to our broader culture. What would Jesus say today? There are some dangerous traditions of men today that are not only supplanting the Word of God, but reason and science, too, are being upended by these traditions of men. And many of these traditions, these policies, these political platforms, these ideologies, maybe they started out in some little basis of truth, or maybe they started out with some desire to be, you know, inclusive or to be gentle and kind with people. But as we just examined, through this process, they've become a means to their own end. They actually stand against the Word of God and have become destructive to individuals and families and society. You know, we are just as susceptible today as they were then to the temptation to make God's Word say what we want it to say, aren't we? We can be just as guilty of elevating other things above the Word of God. Maybe it's our preferred worship style. Maybe it's our political opinions. Maybe it's our particular interpretation of the Bible, our life experiences. Maybe it's human philosophy or lifestyle choices. And when we begin to elevate those things above the Word of God, we then twist Scripture. Or we go hunting for selective Scriptures. We can pull out of context and twist them to use to justify what we're already believing and doing. Listen to the harsh words that Jesus used to describe how the Pharisees were doing this. He said they set aside God's commands. They rejected them. That Greek word means that they made a conscious choice against God's Word. 
And he said they did this to observe their own commandments. That Greek word, observe, means to erect. It means to actually cause something else to stand in the place of God's Word. What might we be building up in our hearts and minds to stand in the place of God's Word? What excuses? Worldviews? What ways of life? What policies, ideologies, and priorities do we see our society erecting in the place of Holy Scripture? And listen, when we call these things out the way Jesus did, those in power will be as angry at us as the Pharisees were. Why? Because they're afraid of the truth. Because they can't stand to have their authority questioned. And that's why the Pharisees from here on out redouble their efforts to conspire to get rid of Jesus. They hate Him. They want to kill Him and get rid of Him. They use this latest challenge as an excuse. Jesus used it as an opportunity to teach a second important truth. Not to the Pharisees. He's done with them. He now turns his attention to the disciples and to the crowd. And he teaches us a truth that sin and righteousness are matters of the heart. So let's pick it up in verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me. Everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. And after he left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? He asked. Remember, you know, last week we talked about the hard heart of the disciples. that They just, some, they just couldn't get it. Their hearts were hard. Jesus calls them dull. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. And the Mark gives us another little parenthetical statement here. In saying this, Jesus effectively declared all foods clean. Now, you know, Peter, who obviously heard this, it took him a while for that to sink in because in Acts chapter 10, we see he still doesn't quite get that, that there are no clean and unclean foods when you're in Christ. All foods are clean. He went on, verse 20, What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Now look back up there. Verse 15. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. That was a radical statement in Jesus' day. William Barclay calls it well nigh the most revolutionary passage in the New Testament. Jesus declared that true righteousness wasn't demonstrated by observing religious rules and rituals, rather by obeying the Word of God out of a love relationship with God. True holiness is internal. It's not external. Now, Jesus made this clear in the Sermon on the Mount many times. In the Beatitudes, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. It is the attitude of our hearts, not the cleanliness of our hands, that determine the quality of our walk with God. 
Jesus, in essence, reversed the flow of purity and impurity. It isn't the ritually impure things outside that defile us on the inside. It's actually our inner spiritual impurities, the effects of sin that defile everything out here that we touch. Everything we say, everything we do is defiled by our sin. The Pharisees were focused on what went into a person's body. You know, are you eating food that's kosher or not kosher? Are you eating with hands and utensils that are washed or not washed? They thought that's what defiled you. But Jesus says it's what goes out of our hearts, through our words and through our actions. That's what defiles us. The key is the heart. Listen, sin resides in your heart already. It's been there from the moment you were born. You don't have to bring it inside of you. You don't have to ingest anything to get it there. It's already there. Which is why Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount that you can commit adultery and murder without actually having to do anything. Because you harbor hate and lust in your heart. The, the sin's effects happen in our heart before we actually do them. Our hearts are the problem. Paul talks about this in Romans 3, actually quoting from the Psalms. He says, as it is written, there is no one righteous. Not even one. There's no one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In verses 20 and 20, 20 through 23, Jesus lists some of the evil thoughts and bad attitudes that come from these depraved hearts the psalmist just described. These things that lead us to sin and make us impure. Let's look at that list as we close. Jesus talks about evil thoughts. He's talking about the evil reasoning within our hearts. And Jesus mentions this first. Because it is from the evil reasoning, the evil intents and thoughts of our heart that everything else flows. And everything else Jesus lists can really be grouped together and categorized. The first we see is sexual immorality. That's the broad term. The Greek word there is porneia, where we get the word pornography from. And sexual immorality leads to more specific sins like adultery, being unfaithful in our marriage, lewdness, which means descending into open and shameless sexual perversion. Pretty descriptive of our culture today. Theft is the result of greed and envy. Greed is the appetite for what belongs to other people. Envy, that word literally means you have an evil eye. The idea is in your heart you have this greed for what someone else has. Envy is when you begin to sort of eye it and plot how you're going to get it. And of course the end result of that is the act of theft. Murder comes from a heart filled with malice. Malice meaning a heart that's ready to inflict pain and suffering on others. And as Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, slander can be an expression of malice. It can be a form of murderous intent. You're not killing their body, but you're killing their reputation. You're killing their good name. 
And slander, of course, is a bridge between the malicious heart and the deceitful heart. The word slander can also mean blasphemy against God. Think about it. If you're going to murder someone either physically or by slander murder the reputation, either way, you are acting in malice against someone created in the image of God. So in a way, that is blasphemy against the Creator. And of course, the result of these evil attitudes and actions that flow from an evil heart is one of arrogance and folly. Arrogance is the sin of praising yourself and lifting yourself up while holding everyone else in contempt. And of course, folly means being spiritually and morally desensitized. You're a fool. The psalmist so aptly points out in Psalm 14:1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. This is how Jesus viewed the human heart apart from His grace. It is totally and utterly depraved. Every area of our lives are corrupted by sin, which begins in our heart. And listen, this flies in the face of our culture. You have some in our culture on the one hand that want to say that everybody's intrinsically good. You're born good. You're just taught bad behaviors. No, you're born dead in your trespasses and sin and enemy of God. Others in the culture want to say, well, sin isn't the problem. It's, it's, you know, it's racism or it's bigotry or it's, it's inequality or it's capitalism or it's whatever. They, they point to all these other social ills, neg- neg- neglecting to point out the fact that the real problem is sin. And sin is in every human heart, regardless of the color of your skin, regardless of your political ideology, regardless of your level of education or income. Sin is in all of our hearts. As we read earlier from Paul, there is no one righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one does good. Left to our own devices, we all become worthless. And no amount of hand washing will change the selfishness and sin in our hearts. And some people try to wash their hands and cleanse their hearts through education. Education is a great thing. There's scientific advancement. Hey, scientific advancement is a great thing. There's social reform or legislation. Those can be great things. But they can't fix our world and they can't change our hearts. You cannot legislate or educate or scientificate sin out of the human heart. I don't know if that's a word, but it is now. There's only one way that we can fix our world. There's only one way we can change our hearts. And His name is Jesus. Our hearts don't need band-aids. They don't need to be dressed up like putting lipstick on a pig. Our hearts need regeneration. No power in this world can make a bad heart good, can make a hard heart soft, or make a dead heart alive. Only the finished work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross can do that. As Jesus said in John 3, 3, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. We need a new birth. We need God to give us a new heart, to put a new spirit, His Spirit, in us. It is only by trusting in Jesus that we can be saved from the sin that's lurking in our hearts and experience Him radically transform us from the inside out. The gospel is radical. It's about a new heart, a new birth, a new creation, a resurrection. Apart from Christ, we are hopelessly lost. We can only be redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus. Do you need Jesus to cleanse the stain from your heart? 
to change you from the inside out. Maybe you've tried to polish the outside. You've turned to education, to self-help books and life coaches. You've tried to give up bad habits and start good habits. You've, You've tried religion. You've tried doing good things. None of these things really change you in here. Oh, they may help for a little while. They may help you to look better, feel a little bit better physically. They may help you to get your finances a little bit in order. But they do nothing to the emptiness and the shame that's in your heart. Because they can't. You need Jesus. Only Jesus can make you clean. Forgive your past sins and erase your guilt and shame. Only Jesus can make you new. Maybe today you're sitting there and saying, David, that's me. What do I do? What do I do? I'm tired of wearing masks. I'm tired of trying. I'm tired of pretending I've got it all together. I'm tired of chasing after religion or after self-help or after whatever it is. I need Jesus to change me from the inside out. I invite you in just a minute as we stand to sing to come down. Let me help you turn from your sins and put your trust in the only one who can make your heart new. Jesus died to make you new. Would you come to Him and live today? Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. Your Word is never changing. It does not go out of fashion. It is not, does not need to be updated. There is no God's Word 2.0. But man's traditions are constantly changing. Even what we say is scientific fact one day is proven not to be the next day. Our reasoning can be flawed. Our life experiences can deceive us. Only Your Word is trustworthy and true. And I pray, Father, if there's anyone here today that has found all of these things to be wanting, to be lacking in real power, that they would come today, right now, and put their trust in You, Jesus. Maybe there's some here today you're leading to unite with our church family so they can worship and serve here with us and help us reach the world with the gospel. I pray they would step out in obedience today. Maybe there's some that just need to come and lay at the foot of the cross the sins they've picked back up. The ways that they have started to stray from your path, God, to rededicate their lives to you, to answer your call to serve. I pray that they would come right now. In Jesus' holy name.